Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. This is going to be an awesome episode talking about Alaska with Lance Kronberger of Freelance Outdoor Adventures. And uh, just want to thank the sponsors of this podcast. Go Hunt Insider is the title sponsor of this podcast. And if you are a hunter that's looking to hunt in the western states and you like doing a bunch of research and finding out the best harvest and draw odds statistics and really pouring over the numbers and finding those hidden gem hunts hidden gem units uh, go hunt insider is for you you can sign up by going to gohunt.com forward slash j scott and once you do that you if you use the j scott promo code you're going to get a 50 dollar go hunt gear shop gift card uh, which allows you to to take 50 bucks and uh, you know put it towards a, a purchase credit towards something uh, on the Go Hunt Gear Shop website, and I encourage everyone to check out GoHunt.com, check out the Insider, and become an Insider member. Uh, I want to thank Go Hunt for their title sponsorship. I also want to thank Kuyu Ultralight Hunting, Jason Harrison. Uh, Kuyu is uh, the the gear that Dar and I use for all of our hunts. Also, phonescope.com, use the JScott16 promo code, and you're going to get a 10% discount on all products at Phonescope. Uh, Outdoorsman's, the Optics Authority in Arizona, Cody Nelson and his group, uh, unbelievable with the optics and the different hunting gear. Uh, they are the uh, uh, renowned authority, the Optics Authority. And uh, if you use the JScott, or excuse me, the JScott promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount at the Outdoorsman's as well. Guys, thanks so much for your loyal support. Continue to send in your pictures. I love uh, seeing your pictures. If you have any questions or comments, uh, please email me at jscottoutdoors at gmail.com. And you can follow along my Instagram account at jscottoutdoors. Let's get right to this episode. Don't forget, the deadline is in three days, December 15th, to apply for Alaska. Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have Lance Kronberger from Freelance Outdoors Adventures. And Lance, I've had you on the podcast before and you specialize right on your website. It says specializing in wet, cold, and miserable. Uh, That's a perfect way to kind of explain some of the experiences you guys have in Alaska. But with all that being said, you get a lot of smiles with that as well. Yeah, you know, we get we get uh we get a lot of comments from that and you know, we'll get both ways, you know, guys are like, Man, what a great marketing tool and then get other guys like, Why in the world would you ever put that out there? And it really came about because people I, I just wanted everyone to know when you're coming to Alaska even with all the equipment, if that's not what you're expecting you're going to the wrong place because you're going to get that. And, and you're especially going to get that with us because uh, not that we skimp on accommodations, but they come second to whatever we need to do to be successful. And so sometimes you don't get to stay in a cabin. Sometimes you're staying in a tent and you don't have heaters. You don't have a way to, to dry out. So if you're not expecting that, Alaska might not be uh, a good fit for you. How important, you know, you've been doing this a long, long time. How important is it to set expectations ahead of time, and how has that improved the quality of the experience of your hunt when you kind of set it up as 
cold, wet, and miserable. And then obviously, I'm sure half the hunts people come in and, and they have pretty decent weather. Um, setting those expectations ahead of time, how has that helped you? You know, so this is this is 23 years in the guiding business, and you kind of your expectations and being a guide and an outfitter it, it morphs over time. And I'm in the business of sending guys home with a smile, and some guys their smile it comes in different ways. But if a guy shows up with unrealistic expectations, the chances of that guy going home without a smile are so much greater. I mean, setting the expectations and preparing the guy in my, in my world is everything. Guys ask, how was your season? We, we can have a really good season, kill great big animals, but I have five guys who, whose expectations were unrealistic to what they were coming from, and it's a disaster. Now, luckily, that hasn't happened, but I've had one or two, and they get to the end of the year, and they're like, man, you know, you know, I didn't see 20 legal rams, and we didn't see a 40-inch ram, and it was like, you know, where, where were those, where did those expectations come? And I found that I've really got to spend a lot of time setting expectations because we'll get to the end of the season, and then everybody went home with a smile, and I look at the season, and I go, man, that, that was a boomer season. Yeah, that's good stuff. Um, with the Alaska draw coming up here in three days on 12-15, uh, December 15th, the deadline, uh, you know, time is of the essence, but Lance, you guide for doll sheep, grizzly bear, brown bear, moose, and goat in Alaska. Um, in a broad spectrum, I know last year we covered this on the podcast, but just for those people that didn't catch that episode last year, um, how does Alaska's draw work from a 30,000-foot view, and how does someone that's listening to this podcast, if they want to hunt doll sheep, grizzly bear, brown bear, moose, or goat, how do they just call you up, talk to you and Nikki, and how does the process work? Okay, so basically... Uh, doll sheep and goats are the uh, the animals that we really specialize in that require a draw. Now, there's other places in the state of Alaska that have over-the-counter doll sheep, and we don't really mess with those. And people need to understand, uh, drawing a tag in Token 14C, the two places that we hunt, um, allows guys to have an opportunity to hunt an area that has controlled pressure. It's not like they're not managing those for great trophy quality. I'm not saying that it doesn't have it, but you don't draw a tag in 14C or toke and say, I'm looking for a book ram. You may draw a tag saying, hey, I'd really like to try to shoot a 40-inch ram, and that may be possible, but... Don't think, hey, you're drawing something that has been managed for extreme trophy quality because what we're doing is we're managing it for uh, the amount of access people have because if it was over-the-counter, it would be shot out and, and um, there would just be so much pressure. So that's different than if a guy draws a Missouri Breaks Montana bighorn tag. 
That's not the same as the way it works in Alaska. And with that, in Alaska, we have no preference points. So if you've never applied, you've got just as good a chance as if you've been applying for 10 years. You get six choices. And unlike other states, every choice is put in separately. The only thing that even matters is if, you know, if you have your first choice and your sixth choice, if you draw them both, they give you your highest choice. So um, it's hard to figure out odds because when you look in the pool and you go, there were, you know, 200 people that put in, there were 200 choices that were put in. That might not be 200 people. And you can put all six into one hunt. Um, some guys that really want to hunt certain areas, they may say, hey, I can only hunt opening week and I want to hunt the toke. We'll put all six of them in for there. Others say, hey, I, I want to give myself uh, a little bit better chances of drawing, spread me out in units that have the best odds. So that's what we'll do. But if someone's interested in applying for sheep and goat, they just got to go to our website, freelanceoutdooradventures.com, and contact us that way or our application for the for the draw is right there. So let's talk since since you're talking about 14C and the toke, let's talk about those two real quick. The 14C is the chugach, and the toke is a separate unit. Um, I think we talked on the last podcast. 14C is is probably more rugged, probably harder to get around, tougher access, tougher uh, maneuverability. The toke is a little bit more subtle, uh, not quite as much brush. Um, correct me if I'm wrong or add, it, add or subtract. And then talk about, I think you bring up a really interesting point that a lot of people that apply all across the western U.S., they get in the mentality of these limited draw units are super high quality. What you're saying is that's not necessarily the case with this. Granted, there is higher quality than some of just the over-the-counter doll sheep units in Alaska, granted, but it's still tough hunting. It's still not super high density, and it doesn't mean if you draw one of these tags, you're guaranteed a Boone and Crockett ram. It means you've got a tag. So talk a little bit about that and 14C and the toke and kind of compare and contrast them. Gotcha. Well, you, you hit the nail right on the head. 14C is more difficult than the toke. 14C has a has uh, a smaller density of, of rams than the toke does. The toke is the eastern Alaska range. It's more interior. The weather uh, doesn't affect their population. Well, they don't get the coastal weather that affects their population like the Chugach range does. The Chugach sheep are body size a little bit bigger, and therefore every now and then, You'll get one of these great big base rams, and, you know, somebody will kill a spanker. But you never draw a tag in 14C thinking I'm going to kill a 170 ram. Basically, what our draws are is we are killing our average ram in token 14C is as good or better than the Canadian Outfitters rams. And we're able to do it because it's a draw. It's a is a lot less expensive hunt. When guys call me up and they say, this is what I want to do, why should I apply for the draw versus going to the Northwest Territories or going to the Yukon? And I can't tell them, 
you're going to kill a bigger ram with us. I'm, I can't tell them you're going to have a better experience. We're going to have the same type of experience, the same type of ram, but you're going to have it's going to the cost is substantially less, probably eight to ten thousand dollars less. Our you know our hunts are seventeen five. You get to Anchorage. There are no extra bush flights. If we fly in somewhere, it's included in the price. That That's probably, you know, when guys start wanting to compare apples to apples, that's really what we're doing. So toke is easier to get around. Toke has a higher density. Um, you know, if guys say, I really want to kill uh, a longhorned ram, toke rams uh, aren't as heavy. They have that fancy look. They flare out. They don't broom as much. Guy says, I want the best chance of killing a heavy broom ram, or we're going to put him in for 14C. Um, it's just got a different type of horn configuration, but 14C is can be more physical, and we're dealing with, like you said, brush and things like that. But the, the hardest thing of the whole entire process is getting guys to apply, because you got to put your name in the hat and, uh, and draw a tag. Lance, when you're looking at 14C just specifically, and I know now with the ability to put all six applications in for one hunt and what have you, it's really hard to nail down the draw odds. But for 14C specifically, I mean, are we talking one in a hundred? Are we talking, you know, five in a hundred? Are we talking, yep. you know, one in a thousand? What what roughly are we talking? We're we're rough in 14C. We're roughly talking five percent. In toke, okay. we're roughly talking two to three percent. Okay, so 14C is a little bit better draw. I would assume that's because it's a, you know, much more physical hunt, much more brush busting. You know, a little bit, little bit tougher on that aspect. So it's it's got a little bit better draw odds. That is correct. Yep, and that's and that's the reason why you know the 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 14C Rams and another another aspect to it is the 14C rams are harder to judge legality because you'll have a 10-year-old ram that doesn't meet the full curl standards. And so if that's not something, you know, that you're versed in, you'll end up passing a ram that you should shoot just because ah, I'm not sure if he's legal. Um, and so the toke rams, a lot of them are full curl at seven years old, and so that makes it easy for guys to judge legality and so that's where you get a little bit of the um, the the odds get skewed a little bit because people uh, want to make sure that they, they're going where it's a, it's easier for them to judge if it's a shooter or not. Makes sense. Uh, how did your hunt this fall go uh, for for doll sheep in Alaska, both in 14C and the toke? They, we went went real good. We went six for six. Um, we had five rifle hunters. Um, four of them were in toke. They all killed rams. We averaged over 38 and 10 years old. We killed a 38 and a half in 14C with a rifle. It was nine years old, and it was you know it it, it was in that low 160s type ram, really nice ram. And then there's a late uh, October archery hunt that um, is October 1st through the 10th, and you have to have an archery. An archery education number is by the International Bowhunters Education Program to apply for that. Um, that hunt is the hardest 
hunt the hardest sheep hunt in North America. I have I have no doubt it's a 14 seat. But we had uh, a guy draw that and he killed the 33 and a half inch seven year old ram, super nice full curl ram, and uh, and so it was good. And we saw lots of other rams on that hunt. That's awesome. You know, I'm on your website and. One thing I really like about your website is you pull it up and you click on hunt. You go to sheep. It has sheep hunts. It says 2018 14C and toke sheep hunts. has the price right there. has download, and then I just clicked the download button, and uh, here is the application You know, staring me in the face with all I got to do is print print it out and um, send it in, and I assume you are Nikki. Uh, your wife uh, goes ahead and ap- applies me for uh, it's just real simple. Um, has it always been that simple or ha- have you had to learn the hard way to make it simple? The, the, you know, Alaska is constantly changing rules. It used to be that you didn't have to have our application um, to apply. Uh, probably in the last six or eight years, we've had to have a guide client agreement for the goat and uh, and sheep hunts. So guys that want to apply, they have to pick their outfitter before they apply. So that's why we have that application. So we've tried to make it as easy as we can. Guys fill that out. They scan it back in, email it to us. Uh, I pick the choices or whatever choices they want. Nikki goes ahead and, and puts them in, and then they get an e- email confirmation that says you're applied in the draw. Um, and so we try to make it as as easy and streamlined as we can, and and then mid-February the results come out, and uh, we're contacting people um, one way or another uh, to start planning a hunt. That's good stuff. Uh, so, do you know the dates off the top of your head uh, for the Chugach and the Toke? Are they at the exact same time, or are they in different season structures, or how does it work? Okay. So, yes, they are. So opening day is the same. August 10th is opening day. So if you draw the first hunt, and, and token 14C are broken up into hunt time frames. So 14C opens August 10th. What we have guys do if they draw the first hunt, they show up in Anchorage on the 6th. The morning of the 7th, we go, we get into camp. It takes us most of the day to get into camp. And then we got the 8th and 9th to do, uh, preseason scouting, get make sure our feet are good, and so the opening day on the tenth, hopefully, we're going after a ram. We do the same thing um, for the toke, same type of structure. The second season in 14C opens on the 23rd of August. So we have, if you draw a second season, guys show up on the 20th. We do the same thing. The second season toke opens up on the 26th. So if a guy draws a second season toke, we're showing up on the 23rd, getting in. Hopefully we're ready to go opening morning. That second season toke, because it's farther north, you know, you know, guys need to understand it's going to be cold. And, you know, this last year, um, you know, we get up there, we have a ram located, opening mornings the next morning, and, you know, we start walking in the dark, and as it gets light, it starts snowing, and it does not stop for two days. And so, you know, here we are in our Kuyu tent, and we got 
you know, a foot of snow drifted around it, and, you know, you can barely get out just to go to the bathroom, and um, we waited for that to pass, and then we were able to go back and find the same ram, but I had a I had a hunter who was tough, and he was good, and he didn't, he understood this was part of the deal, and we're stuck in the tent, and, you know, when it clears up, we'll be ready to go, and, and it worked out good, and we killed a 10-year-old 39-inch ram. All part of the adventure, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Okay, um, that's good stuff. So those are the season dates, uh, and so let me just let me just rehash this. Both 14C and the Toke start on August 10th. The difference is the Toke second season starts three days later on the 26th, not the 23rd. Correct. You got it. And are either season typically year after year better draw odds? Like I would assume maybe that late hunt is better draw odds because potentially the weather could be a factor and and maybe people want to get first shot at the ram so typically are those second hunts a little bit better draw odds the second hunt definitely has better draw odds um and people ask me all the time uh well then I, I, the trophy quality isn't as good on the second hunt we've went through our you know the last 10 years and it is almost exactly the same trophy quality between first and second hunt. Okay, that's that's good information. Um, six for six last year. Uh, on a normal year, you know, are you taking at least four and, you know, as many as eight to ten? I mean, like, it all depends on the draw, but what is a normal year, you know, six, seven, eight guys? Yeah, uh, you know, we're, we have the ability to take you know, we could take a dozen. There's there's only about 15 non-resident tags available um, between those two hunts for 14C and and the toke. So, you know, we couldn't take all those, but, you know, we've averaged seven or eight a year, and, you know, all of our hunts are two guides per hunter. I mean, it used to be a guide and a packer, but, you know, I got guys now that you know, started off as Packers, and they've been doing it for five years, and they're all licensed, and they're ready to be turned loose. We just don't have enough, enough hunt, you know, hunters that draw tags, so everybody gets two guides. Every, all the guides are super into making sure we do everything we can to be successful, and that's part of the reason we can hunt these areas and be six for six is we're not loading the hunter down and beating them up getting into camp because it, it's it's tough country. I mean, if you got if you're a hunter and you've got to carry all your own stuff and your own food and pack the sheep out, you ain't making it ten days. I mean, the average guy yeah. just ain't going to be able to do it. Yeah, yeah. Good stuff there. Um, let's move on to grizzly bear. Talk about your grizzly bear hunts. Actually, actually, Lance, no. Um, let's talk about your goat hunts because that's the other hunt that's the draw. And then the grizzly bear, brown bear, and moose, those are all you can just call up and buy a tag from you, right? So let's talk yep. about doll sheep first, and then now let's talk about goat, and then we can move into the, you know, where guys can just call you up and go hunting. Gotcha. So uh, the goat hunts. So there's, there's, a, there's a few things that we hunt goat in 14C um, in some of the same areas that we hunt sheep. Um, there's a, right, you know, I live in 14C, 
not very far from the house. I can go scouting for goats on a day trip, and um, and we have a really good uh, population of goats. So if a guy is looking for a good goat hunt, those goat hunts open opening day is sometime, depending on the unit, the first week of September. The first week of September, our goats have good hair. The weather hasn't gotten too horrible. Um, so we had two guys through goat tags last year. They both got nice goats. We have another area that we hunt that's up along the glaciers. Um, we'll land up on the glaciers or we'll land down uh, on kind of glacial tailings and then hike up to where the goats are. But if a guy is looking for a great experience at killing a good goat, that's what we have. If a guy says, man, I need a 50-inch goat, you know, I'm not saying we've killed them before, but that's not that's not what I'm selling. I'm selling we're going to kill nine to nine and a half inch billies that got good hair, and you're going to have a great experience. And we're going to physically, just like our sheep hunts, you got a guide and a packer. You're going to be able to do it, and it's going to be tough on you, but it's not going to kill you. Nice. And those, how long are those hunts, Lance? Those hunts are eight day hunts. Eight day hunts. Okay. And that's first week of September? Yeah, they start sometime around the first week of September. The dates, the dates change every year um, in the park, uh, depending on how the weekends fall. Okay. Okay, good stuff. And, again, on your website, Freelance Outdoor Adventures, you, you just click on hunt, you click on mountain goats, and right there, you've got your price. You've got, you know, download the limited uh, draw application, and then you've got your photo gallery. You've got information there. It's, it's all real cut and dry, clear, beautiful pictures, by the way. Um, okay, let's let's move on to grizzly bear, brown bear, and moose, and you can pick which one you start with. Okay. Well, one thing I, I left out on the goat, and this will morph into, so just this last year, we were able to acquire a brown bear area on Kodiak. And so we're on the very southern end of Kodiak. I've been guiding down there for 12 years, uh, guided for a very good friend of mine, and, and he finally decided it was time to retire. So we acquired his business. Um, and we're going to take four or five goat hunters down there also. We've got a really good goat population. Uh, we can hunt them really late which allows for terrific hair. We're not going to kill 50-inch goats. We're trying to kill billies that are over 9 inches. Um, you're, you know, you're just killing a good, solid billy, but you're able to hunt them November, December, January. Um, wet, cold, and miserable, but not 3 feet of snow. Um, so anyway, those are over the counter. Those are just call up, book a hunt with me. We can go and do that. So that's something that we've been able to add to our to our business here just in the last year. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, and while we're at it, um, normally the goat hunts, your draw goat hunts, roughly what is the draw percentage on those? About 20%. 20%. And then your new uh, goat hunts on the Kodiak, uh, those are over-the-counter, in essence. They can buy them and go hunt, you know, just call up and book a hunt. But those are going to be late-season hunts. Now, you're saying it's not snow, it is cold. Are those goats going to be in a little bit more, you know, I hear that when I hear what you're saying, I hear that possibly maybe the goats will be down 
and not as high as they usually are. Is that the case or not? No, not the case on Kodiak, not in our area. So our area it doesn't have super high elevation. Most, the highest are, you know, wood, we're going to land at sea level, um, and we're going <clears> to <throat> hike up to somewhere around 2,000 feet. Those goats are living in the same spot. Um, they're ocean exposed. So they have uh, a lot of, they got a lot of warmer temperatures. And there'll be some snow, and it'll be cold, but because they have the coastal effect, it doesn't usually get a ton of snow. And those goats, the way Kodiak is set up with so much brush, basically, if you can imagine, you've got these rolling hills that go up to about 2,000 feet, and then they drop off right down to the ocean, and there's intermittent brush along those, those rocky, cliffy sides, and they're living there pretty much year-round. Gotcha. So they're, they're taking advantage of that coastal you know, not freezing type weather, not tons of snow, and a little bit more moderate where they can just live right there their whole, their whole life. Exactly. They're, you know, those goats, you know, the wind and the rain and the constant dampness is what hurts us going out there and hunting them. It has almost no effect on them. Yeah. They're, they're a, definitely a neat animal. Okay, let's... Um, Let's move on to uh, bear and moose. Uh, like I said, you pick which one, whether grizzly bear or brown bear, you want to talk about first. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll start with the grizzly bear. The grizzly bear is going to be really interesting to see how things progress now that British Columbia has uh, closed trophy hunting to grizzly bears. I, I, you know, we, we've just kind of finished up our season, so I haven't felt any, you know, um, I would think at the shows this year I'll, I'll find out kind of if the demand's going to switch. But we have a really big grizzly bear area, and we have a, a large quota. So population is really good. Our, our biggest issue with our grizzly bears is our past success. Um, so, you know, we went 15 for 15 this last year on grizzly bears, spring and fall hunts. Um, seven of them were made book. Um, we got three that'll be in the top 30 in the world all time, and you know we this was the best season we've ever had for big bears, which was a little surprising because we've done a really good job of harvesting mature boars and our moose populations coming up, but the bears just keep on filtering in from the outside areas. Bears travel so much, especially large boars will travel so far that I'm not sure if you're only targeting mature boars that, that you can over-harvest an area because if you're targeting the mature boars, you're allowing a lot more of the cubs to survive to the age where they're able to, to make it through that, that uh, first couple years where the large boars are killing them. And so our population's good. Our our grizzly bear hunts are the guy who says, hey, you know, I didn't draw a sheep tag, but I really want to go on uh, a physical adventure. I want to go. That's what our grizzly bear hunts. We run them not just like a sheep hunt, but we'll fly into an area, set up a camp there, but then we always have the ability to put stuff on our back and just take off and go. Um, the country's user-friendly, somewhat easy to get around compared to other places in Alaska, and it's open. We're, we're hunting grizzly bears the way you hunt mule deer out west. I mean, you're glass on large distances. You get a vantage point. 
And so, you know, when I get those guys that are used to hunting mule deer out west, they come and they go, man, I love this. I don't want to do this as much as I can. And so um, guys looking for that type of adventure, uh, the grizzly bear hunt is, is one of the more enjoyable hunts because usually the weather is not as bad as like a coastal brown bear hunt. Okay, and these grizzly bear hunts, these are hunts that guys can just call up and book a hunt, whether it be spring or fall, they can book with you. I mean, just they can listen to this podcast, call you and book a hunt. Absolutely. And if they, if they want to hunt in the fall, we have certain hunts that combo with moose. Um, the moose population is doing really good. Um, part of it has been we've really targeted those, um, those larger boars. It seems like every spring we're killing a bear or two that has just killed moose calves. It, it's amazing. Those bears that learn how to kill moose calves, those, those calves, the first two weeks they're born, don't have a chance. Like if a bear comes across downwind of those, those moose calves, they're done. Um, they how, far, how far can those bears smell those moose calves from? Man. It depends on it depends on the wind and and how um, and how uh, how close it is to when they were born to how much sense there. But my wife killed a very large boar out there. We saw the boar like three miles away, and he was like on a mission coming down the valley. And I'm like, man, we got to go. We got to get over there. Try to cut him off. And we had to go through quite a bit of snow, and we went down through the valley, and we came out of the trees, and I'm like, he got by us. I mean, we, it just took us too long. And then all of a sudden, there he is on the hillside, and his face is all bloody. And we had watched two moose calves. We'd been watching him for three or four days prior, and he'd killed both of them. I mean, we lost sight of him for 45 minutes, and he had another 15 minutes of walking just to get to the moose calves, and... By the time we got there, they're both dead. When we went over and shot him, he was right. I mean, there was two moose calves, half eaten. Wow, that was one question I was going to ask you. You know, obviously it probably depends on how big the calves are, but how quickly can a big boar grizzly eat a moose calf? I mean, is it a matter of just hours and it's gone, or is it yep. a matter of minutes? No, nah, I would say it's going to be hours before he leaves them. But you know, in the spring, they just they're they don't they're not that predictable. You know, a bear kills a couple of moose calves or a moose calf, he may eat it. But depending on how long he's been out of the den, all that kind of stuff, how his system is running, he may be there for a couple of days. He may be there for a couple of hours. Lance, these grizzly bear hunts are they all fly-in hunts, super cub hunts, or are some of them float hunts? What what's the protocol for getting to the grizzly bear country? So all the all of the hunts getting to the country is either in a super cub or a Cessna 180. So they're all fly-in. Um, if we go in the fall and we're hunting moose too, there's a possibility of doing a float hunt, um, depending on where we're hunting. But uh, for the most part. We're, I mean, every hunt we fly in, start, and end where we have to fly back out. With the ban in, in B.C., 
obviously, you know, you, the grizzly bear guides, the outfitters are going to see an uptick, I, I think, in demand. Um, it, it's, it's hard to swallow as an outfitter to realize that, that I mean, that, that it's even possible that they ban grizzly bear hunting in B.C. Just talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's, that whole thing is such a mess, and I don't fully understand their political um, system, how it works, but talking to the outfitters that are friends of mine, you know, the Yukon guys are expecting, because they, they just did it in B.C., the Yukon guys are expecting to see an uptick in the number of guys that want to kill um, grizzly bears. Northwest Territories doesn't have any grizzly bear hunting, so um, I'm sure we're going to see a little more pressure. Um, you know, I, I've had guys, you know, say, hey, oh, you're going to be able to raise your prices and do this, and it's like, you know, that's that's not, that's what, what I'm hoping to see is guys who are our guys, the right guys, who would have went to BC to hunt, are now going, okay, I want to go to Alaska, I'll give Lance a call. Because, um, you know, if I have 100 more guys call that are looking for grizzly bears, but they can't walk, and they're going to complain because it's, you know, it's wet, and they're going to complain because, you know, our hunts are freeze-dried type, we're, I call it glorified freeze-dried. If, if they're looking for the cabin camp cook, if they're looking for that experience, that's just not what we do. So I don't know that we're going to see a big uptick in it. Um, we may see a little bit. But even if we don't, the demand for grizzly bears that we've had, and we've gotten to the point now where guys come and they go, man, this was a blast. I like hunting bears. And so we've got three or four guys that have come, you know, a half dozen times bear hunting with us. So what I hear you saying is, I appreciate what you're saying too, but what I hear you saying is you're not out here just trying to book hunts. You, you really you do well enough in your business that you would rather have the right hunter and the hunter that you know is going to, you can put them in a position to succeed rather than someone like we were talking earlier that has unrealistic expectations and they just, they don't, quote, unquote, they don't get it, you don't even want to book that guy because, you know, it's kind of set up from the beginning for failure, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's our greatest motto is we're not for everybody. Just, I mean, it's almost we do more interviewing the client than they do us. Um, 95% of our hunters that book hunts, not the draw, that book hunts with us are word of mouth or repeat because a guy comes up to me at the show and says, hey, I'm looking for a moose hunt. If I don't get a real good vibe that he's going to fit in with our program, like it's, uh, even if I got an open hunt, it isn't worth booking him because, uh, you know, our guides are part of our family. You know, our operation runs for about five and a half months. So I've got guides that have been with me for a long time, and I also have young guides that I have trained up that are 21, and they are killing machines. But life is too short to be in camp with someone that isn't enjoyable. And so if it's not somebody who's going to fit our, 
our system, and we have a very specific system that works for us. Um, you know, if, if it's all about how fast it's going to happen, if it's all about, you know, I have to have, you know, a nine-foot grizzly, it's all about we got to have gourmet meals, and i got to be back to camp in the daylight, and if it's raining, I don't want to go out. That, th- those are all red flags that that guy just isn't going to fit with our system. <laughs> but that's, with that being said, that's not saying that you have a guy that's up for all that, but maybe he says, Lance, I can't go quite as well as I used to. I know that's a red flag immediately in your head, but as you talk to him more, he just says, I can't walk as fast as I used to. I can't go as hard as I used to, but I'll give you 100% effort. I know what I'm getting into. But, but that means but, it doesn't mean you have a guide that is going to say, what are you doing? Why are you taking so long? You, you have a level of professionalism with your guides that they understand that everybody has a different level of fitness and what have you. You know what I'm saying? There's a fine line there of saying they don't fit into our model, but you're not saying that our guides aren't extremely professional and understand that everybody's at a different level. So our model, the physicality of it, is way down the list. Our, to be honest, and this is going to hit a lot of your readers hard, guys under 40 are our biggest problem. They've never had to wait for anything. They don't, they've, it's, everything is instant. Hunting has become a very quick um, endeavor. I mean, I know guys that are booking five-day elk hunts, you know. I know guys, you know, I, you know we, just, we just went down to Texas and went hunting. We had a shooting opportunity every day. You come on a bear hunt you're going to get one, one good opportunity in 10 days. You're going to sit there and have days you don't see an animal. Guys who are older who give me exactly what you said, hey, I, I won't quit, but I'm not a marathon runner and I'm, I'm, I'm not as fast as I used to be. Absolute, that's our guy. That's our guy. The guy who says, I have to have a 10-footer. I need to be out in five days because I got something else going on, and if I'm late, the whole thing implodes. You know, those are the guys that don't fit our system. Yeah, and, that uh, makes perfect sense. Yeah, we got lots of guys that are in their 70s that I just need a guy who says, I'm here to enjoy the whole experience. I'm here to do whatever. If, when I tell them, hey, we're going to eat freeze-dried, we're going to get up in the morning. We're going to have to walk. We're going to be sitting under a tarp glassing. It's going to be rainy. It's going to be cold. It's going to be miserable. You need to have your sheep hunting boots. You know, when a guy, you know, when a guy understands that, and I fully feel like he understands that, we, we'll, we'll take, you know, I've got lots of guys in their 70s that were taking hunting that have come with us lots. Yeah. Totally understand. i got kids that are coming, you know, that are, that are 12 and 13 that are coming grizzly bear hunting with me quite regularly, and, you know, we don't have any problem. We got a lot, I, if you look at the website, we've got lots of women. You know why kids, women, older guys, know why they, they, they work so good with our system? 
They listen. Tell me what to do. <laughs> tell me how it is, and I'm good with that. Yeah. They show yeah. up prepared because they know that they're not prepared. The guy who says, I mean, I get it all the time. I've hunted, I've hunted out in Wyoming. I've hunted in Idaho. That's great. That is not the weather we get in Alaska. Even, even uh, I go to the Northwest Territories. I've got some really good friends that are outfitters there. Go over there with clients and go hunting myself. The Northwest Territories is not Alaska. I mean, I, I, I hate to say it, but it's not. They don't have the extreme weather that just beats guys down. Lance, what size of bear is a reasonable expectation that you have as a guide for these grizzly bear hunts as far as length and as far as weight? What are, what are guys looking at in, you know, just kind of an average across the board over the years? Right. So bears are so hard, and I'll say this for grizzly bears and brown bears. The only time that a hide square really has any meaning is within a camp where everybody's doing it the same way. Um, so the, the squared hide... Do you have that going on, too, with your like we do with our coos deer and our elk and our mule deer, and you think, golly, that buck doesn't look 200 to me, and, you know, everybody's got a different scoring system. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, and it's, it's, even, it's even worse with, like, the mountain lion. Something that isn't hard where a guy comes sends me a picture says, I shot a 200-pound mountain lion, and I'm looking at it and going... I don't look 200 pounds to me, you know, that's the, the stuff we have. And so the way, we, the way we measure bears is extremely conservative. It's nose to tail, so you, so you, you skin it out. Now, uh, we've really um, streamlined our, our hide care in the sense that, you know, we skin it as tight as we can at the carcass, and then we've got it set up where we try to get the animals out of camp as quickly as possible. Alaska's got a really good uh, system as far as all the um, cargo operators have freezers. So we're getting it back to a facility in Anchorage that they can professionally take care of everything. So we're not dealing with salt in the field, which is becoming a problem with the land managers. And, you know, it's getting done in a... I'm not doing it over my knee in a pup tent while it's blowing. It's getting done... In a, in a perfect environment to where it's done, it's done first class the first time. So anyway, to measure a bear, it's pulled out flat. You measure nose to tail, you measure claw to claw. You don't grab the nose and grab the tail and just stretch it as hard as you can and make the measurement. You don't grab the front claw and the other front claw and pull hard as you can and make the measurement. That adds six to eight inches depending on the size of the bear. So to answer your question, we're telling guys our average grizzly is between seven and a half and eight foot. Now, with that being said, we killed some nine-footers. You know, not everybody's going to see a nine-footer, but they're there. You know, we killed, you know, out of the 15 bears we killed, four of them were honest nine-footers. Now, that's the best we've ever done. You know, an eight-foot grizzly is going to have a real good chance at making books. So book is 24-inch skull. Half of our bears made 24-inch skulls last year. What kind of age um, 
I'm coming from a standpoint of never hunting grizzly bear. What kind of age is, say, a, an eight-foot bear? That's a bear that's, you know, 10 to 14. Um, and, you know, it depends on, you know, a little bit of genetics, and it depends on, you know, uh, how good they are. Those bears that learn how to mo- kill moose calves, um, they they can really pack on the weight and, um, and, and get big quicker than a bear who, who hasn't figured out to get that kind of protein. Okay, and then these grizzly bear hunts in the spring and in the fall, can you give me the rough dates of that? Yeah, so spring grizzly bear hunting basically happens um, the middle of May through the middle of June. So we're hunting them in the spring during the rut. So boars are active, they're moving a lot. We're, we're um, hunting bears that are paired up which is nice because they usually don't move a lot when they're paired up. So if we glass them five miles away and there's a boar and a sow and you can tell that one bear's noticeably bigger than the other bear, then you know you got something to judge it against, which is makes it easier and you know it's a boar. Um, that, that helps out. So that happens, you know, we got a month in the spring. And in the fall, it's basically the month of September is what we're hunting in the fall, and that coincides right with moose season. Okay. Okay, let's jump over to brown bear. Tell me about okay. your brown bear hunts. Yeah, so we got brown bears in two spots. We got brown bear on Kodiak, and we got brown bear on the Alaska Peninsula. They are both brown bear. They would be the difference between hunting a Montana elk and an Arizona elk um, in that, you know, there's they both have the size of a Kodiak is not – bigger than the size of a peninsula bear. They're, they're basically a big bear. It's got the same, um, it's got the same body weight, close to the same skull size. Um, they're just configured differently. So a Kodiak bear is going to be a shorter nose to tail, longer legs. Um, a peninsula bear going to be longer nose to tail and he's going to be a little lower to the ground so in actual you know bear size everybody thinks kodiak's bigger that's not the case um so kodiak has a little bit higher density so you see a few more bears but if you say hey trophy quality where do i have the best chance it is equal both places so we do brown bear hunts on the peninsula. Those happen every other spring, which so we, we're going to be operating in 2018 spring. That happens May 10th through May 31st. And then we, op- we operate every other fall, and that operates. So we operated there last fall, October 1st through the 21st. So we got basically a 21-day season, spring and fall, um, Basically, we have one season a year. It's just different if it's spring or fall that calendar year. On okay, Kodiak, so the next fall will be 2019 fall then. Correct. And the next spring, okay. so the next spring will be 2020. So after we hunt spring of 2018, the bears get an 18-month rest before we hunt them again. Okay, okay. Um, so... Uh, the peninsula, the bear hunting has been good. The population's stable. The weather is horrible. It just, there's, there's, it's the worst weather in Alaska. The Alaska Peninsula has the worst weather. We're accessing everything with super cubs. 
um, on small airstrips, and so the weather really plays a, a factor in getting around and plays a factor in, um, in our success. Weather's good. Success is definitely much better than when the weather's bad. Um, and we're going to have tough weather sometime during the hunt. You just hope that um, it works out uh, that we get it done. So this past fall, rifle hunts, 7 for 10, killed, you know, uh, really nice bears. We had, we had good success. The three guys that did not get bears all saw big bears but caught, got caught in. And we had about a week of bad weather. Um, and so, and how long are those hunts, Lance? Those hunts are 10-day hunts. Okay. So you get a, a blown stock and bad weather, and all of a sudden, you know, and I, I try to get guys to stay longer and stuff like that, um, and not everybody can. But, you know, all three guys, we're, we're working with them on trying to figure, uh, figure something out, time frame for it, get them uh, some kind of, you know, working with them on price to bring them back. Does it kill you as an outfitter, you know, like kill your, does it kill you in your heart when you get guys that, you know, they're doing everything, everything's going good, but the weather just, it just, you know, you go seven for 10 and you know the three guys, it just didn't work because of things that are out of your control. Does it just mentally, does it just drive you nuts? Because you want them to succeed so bad. It makes all my hair fall out. I mean, <laughs> it's gone, <laughs> like mine. <laughs> exactly. So it's, it's 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 interesting. So you know, so we had we dealt between the spring and fall. We dealt with with uh, uh, fifty hunters this year. Forty seven of them went home with animals. So the three guys there um, didn't go home with animals. And so I got I got my young stud guides that have been with me for three years, and and. They haven't been on hardly any unsuccessful hunts. So the the Super Cub's coming in. The weather's horrible. We're going out there to meet him, and I'm just looking at the boys, and I'm saying, boys, right now, this is the worst part of this job. I'm going over there. A guy's going to step out of the Super Cub. He is mentally, emotionally, physically beat up. He's done everything he possibly could to be successful, and he's not. And... This is a part that sucks of my job. Like, what do you say to the guy? They've dropped a lot of money, and they're going home empty-handed. They got, and it's not because of anything they did. You know, a guy comes up and says, "Hey, I was holding out for a ten-foot bear. We saw a nine and a half." And that's different. That's different. That wasn't. That's not the case. These guys have been beat down because of the weather and and stuff, and so. That's the hardest part of the job, and and, um, and when that guy gets off the plane, right then, you know you know what kind of guy it is because they, I know they've done everything, and hopefully they know I've done everything that I can control because I can't control the weather and I can't control the bears. We're going to try our best to put you in the best position, but um, so. That's the worst part of it, and when a guy does does that and he knows that we're trying hard, those are the guys I'm, like, trying to work with to get him to come back. Right. Okay. Talk about your Kodiak um, hunts. You you had talked about the dates for the uh, Alaska Peninsula. What about Kodiak? 
So Kodiak's an earlier season in the spring, and it's a later season in the fall just because it's coastal. So we start April 15th on Kodiak and go to May 15th, except the years that we have spring um, spring down on the peninsula, then we end on May 10th. Kodiak is, I have a lot fewer tags on Kodiak. Um, and then in the fall hunts, it is October 25th through the month of November. But we take our hunts, they go till about November 10th, and then we roll in and start doing a couple of our goat hunts. Um, Kodiak is a, is, a, is a different deal in that the weather is going to suck. The country is really open, so you're doing lots of glass. And um, uh, it, it is a very, very expensive place to operate, extremely expensive, more so than the peninsula. Um, so the price at Kodiak is definitely more than it is on the peninsula, plus I have a very, very strict quota um, so it's a it's a different experience. A lot of guys on Kodiak that have come with me are guys who have hunted a peninsula brown bear, and they go, oh, I, you know, here's another hunt I can do with Lance, and it's a it's a separate experience altogether. I mean, you're still hunting the same bear, but the terrain's different, the logistics are different. You're flying in on a beaver on floats, landing on the ocean. Um, so it's a different experience, um, equally equally rewarding and cool, but sep- you know they're, they're worlds apart in when you get back and you tell about your brown bear hunt, um, this is going to be totally different stories. Okay. Um, it doesn't work out that, well... It would be great if your Kodiak and your Alaska Peninsula, you know, sp- spring and fall seasons would flip-flop with each other so every year you could hunt bear, but I would assume that they're on the same rotation. Does that make sense? So, in other words, you're going to be hunting 2018 spring no. Kodiak. No? No. Kodiak is every spring, every fall. And, okay. Every spring, every fall. Okay. Whereas the Alaska Peninsula flip-flops. Yep, so okay. there's there's no rotation on Kodiak, and because there's hardly no overlap in the seasons, there's just a five-day overlap on the springs, and to be honest, on the spring hunts, you know, on Kodiak we do 15-day hunts because you're going to get, you know, you're going to get some weather, um, and your tag is only good for 15 days. You've got to check in in Kodiak to receive your tag, and when they say, hey, you're flying in the field – you only have 15 days. You can't hunt for five days, leave, and then come back. You, you're, after that 15-day slot's done, your tag is expired. Um, so on Kodiak, uh, it's just because I have so few tags, you know, the, like I said, the price is, is definitely more. You have two guides um, because I, uh, it's just easier to keep guys working and, and get guys more bear experience. So one thing about hunting bears that people don't understand. Guy says he has 10 years bear experience, and all he does is two hunts a year, which is typically what a guide would do, is two hunts a year. Well, if he's 100% success, which he's not going to be for 10 years, that's only 20 bears he's got underneath his belt. I mean, I got guides who've been working for me for five years that they've been in on 25 bear kills, and that eliminates... The mistakes in judging size and judging sex, and I'm not saying it can't happen. 
I, it, it is, it's the hardest animal to judge. But the more you look at, the less the possibility of, of that mistake happening is. Lance, I just got done with my desert sheep hunt here in Arizona, and I took a hunter, and um, he got a nice ram. But before the ram was killed, I was just pulling my hair out because of body size. He was all alone. There was no other sheep around. Um, we got really good looks at him, got to watch him for a long time. But as you know, when you watch and try and field judge an animal that's, that's alone, even if you're looking at a giant, it can be scary at times because you have nothing to base, you know, the characteristics of the horn or the antler or whatever animal you're dealing with. I would assume with bears, it's the same thing. If you're looking at a bear that's all alone, it's super scary from trying to provide the most accurate opinion of telling your client Talk a little bit about that with bears, and I'm making a total assumption here that that is a problem because they are alone a lot when you see them. Yeah, I mean, it's the worst. I mean, basically, unless we're grizzly bear hunting or it's something that happens that it's not, it's, it's pretty uncommon that when we're hunting brown bear in the spring that they're paired up. I mean, it can happen late spring, but... I mean, if it happens and you go, oh, there's a boar and a sow, you're like, whoo, okay, now I got something to judge it against. 95% of the time, it's a lone bear you're judging, and it's nerve-wracking, especially, um, you know, especially for, you know, those first, you know, when a guy's got, you know, 10 or 12 bears under his belt, and now he's getting turned loose, and, you know, he's making the call. I mean, it's the worst. Um, so because of that, um, I have, you know, my guides, like I said, guides with me are family. I mean, they're, you're, you're, you're living in our house, you're in our camps, you know, I'm training them. They have to be a packer for me for two years. So, you know, if I don't enjoy someone, if I don't enjoy being around them, they ain't going to make it to ever being a guide. So those guys, I have a progression. These, this is the, it's on a piece of paper they carry in their pack. This is the list of things I want you to look for to determine first number one thing you got to figure out is you got to know what sex it is because if you say that's a big old dry sow versus a big boar it's a foot difference they may have everything equally the same but the difference between a boar and a sow is a foot in size so you say man that's a big bear you know big blocky head and you get over there and you shoot it and you say it's a boar say man I think that's a you know that's close to a 10-foot board, and you bang it and you flip it over, and it's a sow, it's going to be between 8 and a half and 9. That's, and now all of a sudden, we got long faces. Um, so I have a progression, and once you determine, hey, this, this bear has all the characteristics of a boar, now we go through the next line of, of progression on trying to determine what size it is. And it's not a science. I mean, it's, you know, it's like judging people. I mean, it's really hard if, you know, if you don't get, you know, you can, you know, I always say, you know, you got to make sure you're not shooting, you know, the bearded lady. You know, you just, <laughs> yeah, it had all the characteristics of a male, but it wasn't. So anyway, um, that is nerve-wracking. I always say, 
you know, the longest five minutes is from the time you dump a bear till you walk up and flip it over. How many of your clients that actually come brown bear hunting, I mean, in, a, in an honest, true sense, how many of them really care if it's nine feet, if it's eight feet, if it's, you know, nine and three, like, or are most of them just come and want to have a great experience and shoot a nice, big, mature bear? And, I mean, I know coos deer hunters. I know sheep hunters. I know that, you know, some of them are, you know, super caught up on one inch or two inch or this or that. I'm just curious if it translates into the bear hunting world of, you know, are, are they that caught up in, you know, is it, a nine, is it an eight-footer or a nine-footer or an eight-and-a-half or a nine-and-a-half? Yes. Really? Yes. Probably number one question. And the reason really? is because of the price. And gotcha. So they, they think that because they're paying a bunch of money that they should be able to get a certain size bear and you as a guide should be able to nail it within an inch type of thing? Not within an inch, but within a half a foot. Um, I know other outfitters that will, won't let their guides give out numbers. Basically, they can say small, medium, large because the, the hunter has held their feet to the fire. That guy said it was a nine and a half and it was eight foot ten and I'm pissed. Um, right. You know, that you know, falls under the sheep hunting world a little bit. So, um, I, and I won't, I won't say, everybody wants to know what are my chances of killing X. Guys come up to me and say, I'm looking for a ten foot bear what are my chances? And I say, you need to talk to someone else. <laughs> Good for you. <laughs> we'll kill as many 10-foot bears as anybody else, but that guy right there, red flag, like yeah. the guy who killed the biggest bear. So I had a guy come moose hunting with me, not in great shape. When you look at him, you go, man, uh, you know, this guy, I hope this guy can walk good, and he can actually walk really good. Not in great shape, but a great guy. Came and booked a moose hunt, and he says, I just want a legal moose. So we went and did a moose hunt. The guy did great, and we got down. He goes, what are my chances of killing an eight-and-a-half-foot bear? And I said, you know what? Your chances are really, really good at killing an eight-and-a-half-foot bear. And he says, okay, well, then I, I want to book a brown bear hunt. Perfect. I said, that's, that's our type of client. Comes, mm -hmm. 10-foot-3. 28 and three-quarter inch skull biggest bear of the season would have been but quite honestly i was yep. going to say that same guy if he would have shot a eight and a quarter bear and eight and a half yeah he would have been just as happy right yep would have been tickled to death tickled to yeah. death and so what happens is um bears are not like uh, you know, like sheep, guys do a bunch of preseason scouting, and we got this one over in this valley, and we got this. It doesn't work like that with bears. You've got to be there. He comes walking through. It's a night. I mean, the biggest bears are, are usually shot by the guy that says, you tell me what to shoot, and I'll be happy. So, you know, the cost, the cost and I understand it's a lot of money. Um, and people think, you know, in, in our world, like it's, Cinder River on the peninsula. I mean, I got two super cubs sitting there. I got, you know, that, that's the killer is when you got airplanes involved because those things are, they just, they just suck up money. That's just the way it goes, and you got to have them. Um, so uh, the size is the number one issue. Guy says, I'm telling guys we're killing nine-foot bears. 
that's what our guides, if a guide says, hey, that bear, I feel that that bear's over nine foot, you need to kill him. If a guy says, I'm perfectly good with that, that's my type of guy. Yeah. Yeah, makes total sense. Um, that's, that's good stuff. Uh, I got lots of guys who've hunted with me before that shot a nine-foot bear that say, hey, I'd like to come back and try for a 10-footer, and if I don't get one, I'm okay with that. And I know that they're okay with that. I already know that. And so um, then all of a sudden, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go and we'll pass up nine-foot bears. But for a guy to call a bear a 10-footer, that'd be like me saying, Jay, is that ram going to make 175? Like, there's not much room for air. Like, right. you know, it, it, you know, it's kind of like you say, you know, if I came down and said, hey, Jay, will that elk make 350? There's a lot of room for air there. Yeah. You're going to see well, that over that. I, th- I think you make another great point, though, in the fact that, like, you know, a lot of our sheep hunts, a lot of our elk hunts, even our coosters hunts, mule deer hunts, like, scouting we've you know you know whether it's a trail camera whether it's a you know um phone scope video or you have a chance to analyze you bring it back you know you're around camp and your buddies are looking at everybody's nitpicking everybody's giving their two cents like lots of time you have a chance to evaluate from what it sounds like on these brown bear hunts i mean like it's just you and the guide or two guides and you're out there and those guides have to make a quote unquote an executive decision you know, with the hunter and you're, you're all in it together. Um, but it's not like a chance where, you know, you have days to kind of, you know, oh, well, we've been scouting the ceram for, you know, two months and we have, you know, 15 hours of video of them. We've seen them from every angle. I can see where, you know, <laughs> I can see how being a brown bear guide would be a nerve-wracking experience if you had the wrong client. Um, yeah, you know, if, if you've got the guy that says, you know, if, if I don't get a nine-and-a-half-foot bear, then this isn't a successful hunt. I mean, it's like it's not even worth taking that guy. Correct. Correct. Because most of the bear decisions are made in less – you have to make the decision in less than 30 seconds or you're going to wow. miss the opportunity. Wow. And, you know, it's not like it's 30 seconds of him, you know – you know, you hope it's 30 seconds of them on a gravel bar or on a sandy beach and you can see everything, but that's not usually the case. It's usually, you know, you get to see them for 10 seconds going through one clearing into the next, and if you wait till you see them the next time, you may miss that chance of cutting them off. And that's where, yeah, it, it, it makes it tough, but it is, the, people forget the thrill of being successful is because there's a chance of defeat. If it's a guaranteed deal, well, then all of a sudden the the thrill of getting it done is not as great. And um, and so there is, you know, when you're hunting bear, especially brown bear, especially brown bear, the chances of you really knocking it out of the park are are probably the least of any hunt that that. That people do like you have all the money in the world you come up to me and you say I got a hundred thousand dollars I want a 10-foot brown bear I probably I, I definitely can't guarantee you that I'm gonna get you a 10-foot brown bear you may have to come four or five times to have that kind of opportunity 
it's kind of like the guy, I do Gould's turkey hunts in Mexico, and it's kind of like the guy that calls and he's asking me about the hunts, and he's watched the videos and what have you, and he says, what are your beard lengths? And I said, I say, you know, honestly, we don't even really measure beards. What do you mean you don't measure beards? You know, I've measured beards before, but if, you know, I look at this Gould's turkey hunt as, you know, it's your chance to complete your royal slam. It's a chance to get a bird that's, you know, fairly rare compared to the rest of the turkeys. And if it's gobbling and if it's strutting and if it comes into the call, I don't really care if it has an 8-inch beard or an 11-inch beard. And, yes, do we kill multiple bearded toms? Yes. Do we kill birds that have, you know, 11-inch beards? Yes. Um, but some of the best hunts have been a 9-inch beard bird that comes in and beats the decoys up, and it's an unbelievable experience. You watch them fly off the limb. And so on this podcast, I, you know, while I talk a lot about field judging, I talk a lot about trying to be accurate. I talk a lot about trying not to embellish and to, you know, to be sincere on, you know, if you think it's a 95-inch buck or a 102-inch buck, then, you know, you got to own it. Um, but on the other hand, I like to talk about the experience. I like to talk about, you know, challenging yourself. You know, if you've killed four brown bears and they've all been in the nine-foot range and you want to go back and pay Lance to go and try for a 10-footer, if you've got the resources to go on four, five, six, seven hunts and never end up getting that 10-footer or finally get the 10-footer, fine. Um, but if you're going to go on a, you know, one time, you're going to hunt brown bear, to have expectations of a 10-foot bear or a nine-foot bear, rather than say, I want to go on a great brown bear hunt, and you know whatever the guide tells me that is a you know big mature animal that I'm going to be happy with whatever I get, and you know that it, I think people set themselves up for failure all the time, um, and you know I think you bring an interesting perspective. Stepping away from all this for just a second, it dawned on me that. You have a ton of experience, obviously, as an outfitter, and there's a lot of people that listen to this podcast that are guides that are starting outfitting businesses and what have you. What advice would you give to young guides and young outfitters that are trying to make a living guiding hunts? The biggest piece of advice I can give is that relationships are everything. And relationships are, you know, I say this to my guys, relationships are forged in the trenches. You do not create the relationship with the client just being the manager. Sometimes you have to be the manager and, and you don't get to be in the trenches. But if you're starting out, and, and I, I, I lucked out and stumbled into this, if you're starting out, You've got to figure out how to forge those relationships to where you have those core group of guys that, you know, they think of you as a son because there's going to be times where you're not going to be able to fill all your hunts. There's going to be times where you're going to need to borrow some money. You're not going to get financing them from a bank, and you need to have those group of guys. That's the biggest piece of advice I can give guys trying to start out. Remember that these guys who are coming, everybody who's coming hunting with you is successful at what they do, whatever that may be. 
And, and their God-given talent, a lot of times, is making money, or they wouldn't be able to afford to do whatever we're doing. And, and you've seen it, I've seen it. There are some guys that that is their God-given talent. Their talent is whatever they do, they make money at, and then they can afford to pay you to, to go hunting. And we've got to remember, they're just people, and if you start running guys through, like, you know, you're herding cows, or you're treating them as, you know, they're just the fat cat that's got lots of money, you're going to miss those relationships. And, um, you know, that's the biggest thing. This is a business of relationships. Um, it's If you're, if you're going to say, I'm just going to hang my hat on killing the biggest stuff in the world but being a jerk, it's going to come back to bite you sooner or later. Yeah, it's not going to be very rewarding as well. No, and, you know, I get the, you know, the, the average Joe, you know, is always, you know, people hear what I do for a living, they go, man, you must have to deal with a lot of jerks. Like, no, I don't have to deal with hardly any. Like, yeah. most of the guys I deal with are great. They're, I mean, they're, yeah. you know, the, the difference is, you know, some people are, are really good at, at woodworking or whatever their talent is. These guys, their talent is their businesses, whatever it is, they've been the best at it and become successful. And, and because of that, their bank account's different than my bank account. But there's still people that want to be treated like people, and they want to have a good time. And if you're, a, you know, if, if you're unhappy to be around and people don't like being around you, the guiding industry is going to be real tough. Great advice. Great advice, Lance. Um, let's finish up and talk about your moose hunts. Yeah, you know, moose hunts are the hot item right now. I don't, you know, I don't, everybody wants a moose. It seems like, um, you know, we have some openings, but our, our moose hunts are, are, are physical in nature, just like everything we do. I mean, when I, when I say wet, cold, and miserable, you know, I, we really mean it. And, and I, we, we don't go looking for misery but it just, it's part of Alaska. Um, our moose hunts, we got a good moose area. we got, uh, you know, a good population. Um, we went 8 for 11 this last year on guys who were doing combo moose grizzly bear hunts. And um, the guys who didn't get moose all got bears. Um, they all saw lots of moose, didn't, just didn't see uh the type of moose they were looking for. The eight moose we did kill, our average was 63. Um, two of them made book. It's, you know, it's a good hunt. Same type of deal. We're fighting weather, and um, and guys got to be able to walk. And when you kill a moose, guys got to understand, I'm not expecting them to pack hindquarters or front, but they, they got to help out some. We're going to bring a packer in, because uh, most of our moose hunts, it's a guide and the hunter. Once they kill the moose, we're figuring out how we're going to get it out. We try to get a packer in there to help them out. But, you know, it isn't like, hey, you pulled the trigger, you took the picture, and now you're out of here. You know, and there's places that are like that, that, you know, we need guys who've got to be involved. And I'm not expecting them to carry 100 pounds, but, you know, hey, I, I need you to carry, you know, the back straps. I need you to carry know this side of the neck means help trying to get it out yeah. yeah 
Okay. Uh, and what is the time of year for your um, moose hunts? They happen the month of September. Okay. So we take about we take you know ten to twelve moose hunters a year, um, uh, and you know the earlier September hunts, the weather's better, and the later you get in September, the colder it gets. Um, but the moose population is really good, and that's the biggest thing. I think you know guys got to realize, and, and as an outfitter. In Alaska, you know, we got to pick, you know, where we hunt, and I just try to pick where the population's good, the trophy quality is good, um, to where I send home guys home with a smile. You know, that's just what, what we're trying to do. Is um, if, if I can, if I could sum up our business is, you know, if if I send everybody home with a smile, you know, that's that's our our big objective. Six, you know, I have guys who had hunts that were unsuccessful that left with big smiles. And I've had guys who've had hunts that, that were successful, you know, that didn't have smiles. And part of that was we were unrealistic expectations, and either I didn't do a good picture of painting realistic expectations, or I just I didn't gather that um, when I was booking them that it was going to be that that was going to be the, the largest issue out there. I noticed here on your website you talk about uh, you've got fishing trips. Talk a little bit about your fishing trips that you do in the summer. Yeah, we do some, some fishing trips down at our lodge on the peninsula, and, and they're a great family or group of people. Our fishing trips are six to eight people. Um, it's almost always it's... Uh, it's either guys who say, hey, I want to come hunting with you, but I'm going to bring a group of fishermen and, and get to know you, and then they end up booking a hunt. Or it's guys who have hunted with us who want to bring their family and show them Alaska. Um, we make our, you know, our fishing trips. We try to make um, as nice as we can. We catch, we catch lots of fish at, down at Cinder River. And then we do a float trip that's outside of Anchorage. We fly in, see uh, McKinley, and float down a river for six days and uh, catch fish and camp along the bank and just have a great experience. And, you know, you know, I got a young family, and so it's one of the things I, that sometimes my wife and kids go on the trips, and, and it's that type of experience that I want, I want people to bring, be able to bring, um, bring their families on, bring buddies on. You know, the fishing trips, there's a lot of laughing. You know, it's, it's, they don't have the same pressure or stress or hurry up that you have on a hunt. And so that's enjoyable. Same guides are doing that. So what's happened is it is, you know, guys show up to go on a hunt or a fishing trip. And because we've kept the same crew, it's like old home week. I mean, people are showing up and, you know, we know about their families and they know about our families and, and they know the guides and how so-and-so doing. And so that makes it a lot of fun. And the fishing trips are um, we try to make it as easy as we can. Show up. We provide sleeping bags, all the fishing equipment. You got to show up with waders and your personal gear, and that's about it. And what what kind of fish are you guys catching? We're catching depending on where you're going in the time of year, but we're targeting all five species of salmon depending on the time of year. Um, and then we got you know on our float trips we got rainbows and grayling, and then down at Cinder River. We got a few rainbows. We got lots of Dolly Varden and Arctic char, along with the salmon species. Good stuff. 
sounds like a lot of fun. Lance, you've um, shared a lot of great stuff with us. Um, I kind of want to end uh, here talking a little bit about gear. Um, since you guys specialize in wet, cold, and miserable, um, you obviously have tried all kinds of gear. And if you could talk a little bit about uh, guys coming on a lot of these hunts we've talked about, I know each one is different, but in general, um, what are some basic principles of gear um, you know, as far as what people should be expecting uh, when they come to Alaska? So here's what, you know, exact, there, there's lots of things, but number one, guys are bringing too much stuff. Gear has become so cool, and we have so much of it. Guys are just showing up with, with too much stuff. And, and um, you know, it's interesting in Alaska, the amount of stuff you're bringing, even on the hunts that we're not backpacking, you know, the planes can only carry so much. So as far as gear goes in Alaska, the biggest thing is you live in your rain gear. So that's the number one most important piece. Um, you know, Jason there at Kuyu is a, is a really good friend of mine, and we've been wearing their rain gear, and it's worked good, but we're even working to make it better. And I'm working with Jason to develop stuff. Um, the rain gear that is needed in pretty much everywhere else besides a coastal environment in Alaska is different than what we need. So uh, we're working with them. Um, but, you know, having your layering system, but if your rain gear fails or you show up with subpar rain gear, that is, that, that's a deal breaker. Um, and that's right next to your boots. Um, and, and boots, it's, it's interesting because boots are one of those things that you can say, this is the best because they're so personal. There's probably five or six different boot manufacturers out there that all make a good boot. Whatever fits their foot, a guy needs to you know, stick with it and, and don't come to Alaska going, hey, I'm going to try these boots out. That's the wrong place to be trying boots out. So um, the biggest thing I can say about the gear in Alaska because of the, being so diverse in what you're doing, you have to really pay attention to the gear list that goes with whatever you're going to hunt. Now, our gear list is, is relatively the same on most stuff. Um, it always has the rain gear. Most of the time, we're using the, the, the same boots. We have a couple hunts where guys are in, um, in their Sims waders and fishing boots because we're doing a float trip or we're going to be crossing so many streams when we're moose or brown bear hunting. But, you know, guys need to look at gear list. Of course, all my stuff that I got is the Kuyu system. And if, if they really look at it and do it right, they'll buy it and it will correlate to all their hunts that they do in the lower 48 and, and, and all over the place. So what you're saying is you buy good gear, you can use it on hunts all over the world. Yeah, and don't, like, I, I, I cannot emphasize, you don't need as much gear as everybody wants to bring and have. You, if you're bringing a piece of equipment for every possible scenario, it ain't going to work, especially in our 
It isn't like, hey, let's load up the pickup truck and we're driving to the trailhead and we're coming back every day. So guys got to understand, in an Alaska hunt, they've got to make sure that their gear that they're taking has multiple purposes. You know, you know, you don't need three headlamps. You need one good headlamp. You know, you can't have multiple sets of boots. Um, you need, you know, you need. You got to understand that you need one set of pants. I hunt in my rain pants the whole time. The only thing I have extra of is long johns that I adjust the layering to. You can't be showing up with a hundred pounds of gear and throwing that in the super cup. It doesn't work. So uh, guys need to understand. You know, I've had guys and they're like, "Oh, I got to take all this stuff," and I'm like, "So we take an extra flight to get it out there." And at the end of the hunt, they didn't use any of it. You're wearing the same stuff in Alaska every day. I mean, you might change your socks every other day. You might change your underwear. But for the most part, you're wearing the same stuff. And that's just part of the wet, cold, and miserable. (laughs) That's well said. Um, Lance, awesome job on the podcast. Thanks for bringing all this information to us want to give you a chance to let the listeners know how they can reach you, want to encourage them to check out Freelance Outdoor Adventures uh, website. Uh, you make it very, very simple for people that want to apply, but there's a tight, there's a, you know, there's a timeline here that's tight because we're the 12th of December. This podcast is going to air today, and the deadline is the 15th. So go ahead and tell people how they can, uh, get a hold of you and reach you, but also, uh, you know, tell them time is of the essence. Yeah, you know, anybody can send me an email. It's freelanceaway at mac.com. Um, that email address is also on our website, freelanceoutdooradventures.com, and you can just go under the contact us. Um, email is a great way if guys want to contact me by phone. The best way to get me is on my cell, which is 907-854-2822. I'll answer any questions on any of this stuff that guys have. Uh, The draw application deadline is, you know, midnight on the 15th. So like you said, we've got a couple days. But if guys are wanting to doll sheep hunt, I can only say this. They're not going to get any less expensive. So if, if... that is part of uh, guys' hesitation to go sheep hunting is the cost of it. If you think you want to do it, you need to start applying because don't think, hey, doll sheep prices are going to come down because with the way things are going as far as them shutting off places to go hunting, they're not going to. And, and, and that's, you know, I'm under the same thing. You know, uh, I'm working on a limited budget, so I understand. But uh, if that's... If that's something you want to do someday, I recommend you apply. Good stuff, man. Thanks so much for uh, spending time. Also, what shows are you going to be at? So if people want to look you up at the shows, where will you be? I'm going to be at Wild Sheep Foundation. We'll be at National SCI. And we're also going to be at the Grand Slam Club Ovis uh, show. So, um, you know, that's a great place to come and, and, you know, shake hands and, and see if, see if and, and, and I tell this to guys that are looking for hunts, you need to feel good about your outfitter, but remember, the most important guy on everybody's hunt is not the outfitter, 
It's a guy that's sitting in the tent with you every night. So, you know, you need to get to know the outfitter so you have a feel for his crew. But the most important guy on that hunt is the guy who's making a call saying, shoot this one or shoot that one. Lance, thanks so much for spending time here. God bless you. Tell Nikki hello and um, uh, just really appreciate having you on the podcast, okay? All right. Sounds great. And we'll just look forward to seeing you at the shows. All right, buddy. You take care, okay? All right. Thank you.